0: and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Charles Paul, who is a section bassist in the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and also performs with Kinetic, the conductless ensemble based in Houston, Texas. And we'll be talking about his transition from conservatory life to becoming a professional musician. Welcome, Chuck. Thanks for being here. How's it going, Patty? Yeah, it's great. You're my first bassist on the podcast.
1: Ooh, that's fun. To be the emissary for all my kind. Exactly.
0: (laughs) When when I was looking through my previous guests, I was noticing that most of them were cellists and violists. Mm, (laughs) I I (laughs) I was like, wait a second, I'm missing something. So a bass, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we knew each other basically from Rice University. And when did you join Kinetic?
1: So I joined Kinetic because it's interesting when we talk about Kinetic, where it's like, what? truly was like its first thing
0: genesis yeah
1: yeah the genesis of it and there was like natalie lynn's dma recital then there was like another proto version of that. And then there was the big Thomas Tallis, you know, in the church, the first season proper kinetic concert. That was the first time that I played with the ensemble. I played was uh, Thomas Tallis. It was Thomas Tallis. That's
0: right. I remember now. Okay, of course. Yeah, that's,
1: it was Thomas Tallis. And I was in the second orchestra. So you can see the video online of this kid with way too much hair playing bass in the balcony overlooking the first orchestra. Yeah.
0: If you want to recall listeners to Natalie Lynn Douglas's episode, she mentions about that as being one of her transformative performance experiences with kinetic was that oh it particular- was for us all
1: it also was this moment where everybody in this ensemble kind of looked at each other and they were like oh wait a minute that was really good yeah like we could we could do this again i also i was quite young that was my junior year of my undergrad the mm-hmm. first semester and i was playing with these people who were just like way above my pay grade <laughs> you know no um, don't it, say that. <laughs> it, no it, oh, it, it was so true but for me i was just like holy crap this was amazing that was that was when i
0: joined yeah I mean, that's basically when I joined as well. So we mm-hmm. kind of started Kinetic at the same time. Absolutely. And-
1: I wanted to talk about how eventually we settled into this groove where, because you you preferred playing the third cello part.
0: Yeah, I love playing in know. the back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And obviously so did we, me and August Ramos, who and he and I became two of the most frequent people to play bass together. So there was this golden time where it was me, August, and you, and it was yeah. past. pass. It was Patty Bass. Right. You know, it, yeah, where this squad of the three of us always had the same stuff. And I remember, I do remember the day that we were like,
0: yeah, okay, Patty, you're an honorary bass player now. Yes, I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the reason
0: why was because sometimes the cello part would have a divisi, so that's where the music would split. And you know, maybe some front players would play a different music than the back players. So then most of the time that part would be doubling the bass part, which is a pretty standard orchestral technique to do. So therefore I became an honorary bassist that way. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Well, it's also because we would play these things where like, I remember in particular um, playing like Pierre Jalbert, you know, yep. like String Theory and he's just like monster crazy bass parts and cello parts that were so weighted in the low section and stuff like that. And just you, me and August just bare knuckling, putting it down, you know, yeah. big sound. And yeah, you were you were a bass player those days, Patty. I, yeah, <laughs> I, For me, it
0: was such a joy because it's that opportunity to be the glue between the bass section to the cello section. For sure. And it, that's just such a unique role to have. I think that's That's why I loved playing in the back because I had that unique opportunity to be putting my feet in both boats, so to say.
1: It was important for us you know especially in the way that the ensemble worked where there was so much of this interplay I mean Kinetic is an ensemble that I just I don't really you know I can't think of too many others that are anything like it and for me being a bass player we don't really have a lot of opportunity to learn how to play chamber music there's not a lot of rep you know what I mean we don't grow up with the same sense of it being this like ever-present thing in our lives in fact I mean if you think of what the string quartet is we have this entire library of material that's essentially Denied to us as string players, right. you Sorry. know. <laughs> and, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, we're- It's we're, mine! We're, we're plenty pissed about it. But, um. Well, <laughs> I mean, but
0: just for historic reference, the mm-hmm. string quartet did begin as a two violins, viola, and bass. And then, you know, we got got upgraded,
1: I guess. <laughs> it's like, true. I mean, I, it, well, I mean, listen, listen I, I- I should I, say I upgraded.
0: <laughs> I would never
1: try to tear down the concept of the string quartet as it is today because it's, holy crap, there's like amazing library of material that is for it. And it's such intense music, you know? And the bass as an instrument, it is inherently very, different from its string family and we, this maybe we could talk about later because i couldn't talk about that for a very long time <laughs> the, yeah. how the differences and the similarities but regardless i didn't have a lot of experience playing chamber music you did many people in kinetic did and I had, you know, I almost kind of think about it like book smarts and street smarts where it's like, there were all of these techniques in chamber music that I didn't necessarily understand from the perspective of a quartet musician. But as a bass player, things that I do understand are these very like bedrock fundamental ideas. And not to say that people who play chair sure music don't understand them as well. It's just that that's the point of our instrument is yeah. to put down this bedrock foundation, creating the stage for which to, you know people to play on. So top level, bottom level, sometimes problems occur, you know, and having passed together was so great because I felt like we kind of had a conduit to understanding that better for sure.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks. That feels nice (laughs) Mm. (laughs) that I was a part of that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my fond memories though of you, Chuck, is after a rehearsal of some kind, it could be kinetic, it could be orchestra just after practicing. We just walk over and hang out at Valhalla, which was the -the hole-in-the-wall bar at Rice (laughs) University and we just, they sell really cheap beer, like, you know, $1 beers and I essentially rented a room there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was just having those outdoor hangout chill moments was always really fun. And I personally I associate a lot of positive memories with you and us oh. hanging out.
1: Yeah, there's not another place like it. And especially to have all these musicians and friends, you know, and, and I mean like the conversations that we used to have about music, you know, you and I even there over a beer or two, those were some of the most formative years of mine there at school. So boy howdy, I miss Valhalla. Let's sure. talk.
0: Tell me about John luc
1: Oh, my little boy.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: I should specify to where I said my little boy is my cat. Um, (laughs) Not a a human child. I adopted a 10-week-old kitten a little while ago, and he has become everything to me, and I love him. And he is so damn handsome, and I would do anything for him. I really am completely infatuated with this kitten. He's so sweet and loving. He's grown like a weed. He's my first pet. I grew up with cats and dogs at my parents' house, but he's my first mine pet. Yeah. And I look forward to the next, hopefully 20 years with him. Yeah. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Cats can live up to that long. Yeah. I have that yeah. same affection for sushi as well. I mean, sure. in the oh, sense sushi. that, that she is the first pet I've ever mm. been the guardian for. And so I mm. feel so much responsibility for her life that that's yeah. where I'm relating with you. When you're talking about Jean-Luc,
1: it's amazing discovering the personality that your pets have yeah. and how human they are. Yeah. And I feel like that's been the thing with my, with my cat son
0: could you do a quick rundown of the adoption story and what brought Oh, sure, some... yeah.
1: There's the Maryland SPCA in Hamden, which is about 10 minutes north of where I live. And I saw it all the time. I don't know. It just kind of worked into my subconscious, I suppose. And then, no, they had these like rescue kittens and his name was Sleepy first. But I was just kind of looking online and I had applied for a couple other kittens because that's the way they work. You know, they sent me photos of him. Oh, and also they do like a rather long like, interview process. So we did all that and then I picked him up and that was just like the greatest day ever. Um <laughs> <laughs> You know, John Luke, yeah, he. That's the story with my little boy. I loved him more every day. Oh,
0: yeah, sweetie, catch the so sweet. best. Okay, are you ready for some spitfire questions? I am ready. Okay, Mozart or Beethoven?
1: Mozart.
0: Interesting. That Shostakov- was
1: hard, though. That's not fair. What? Okay, Wait, Mo- the
0: question's not fair.
1: That's so hard.
0: <laughs> yeah. Shostakovich or Prokofiev? Ooh, Prokofiev. Netflix or video games?
1: Video games.
0: Basil or cilantro?
1: Ooh, cilantro.
0: Nice. Harry Potter, Star Wars, or Lord of the Rings?
1: Lord of the Rings.
0: Symphony or chamber music?
1: I kind of got to say symphony. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I play bass. <laughs>
0: yeah, fair enough. Coffee or tea?
1: Coffee. Even though I wish I was more into tea. Coffee. Okay.
0: <laughs> Favorite practice room? Ever? Yeah.
1: Oh, at Rice University Shepherd School of Music. There are two rooms devoted only to the double bassists because our instruments are huge and getting them up the stairs suck. So we have two. One of them is called the fishbowl because one whole wall is a window that goes into a courtyard. So everyone can look at you practicing. Many amazing memories in there for the six years I was at Rice. Gotta go fishbowl.
0: Fishbowl. I do remember what you're talking about. Yeah. Favorite professor shout out? Oh, crap. Because I'd love to shout out my teacher, Paul Ellison, of course, Dr. Walter Bailey. I
1: know you retired, but you were amazing. He was my he was my modern music history teacher, and he was immensely creative and somebody who got me into everything. Dr. Bailey, <laughs> I love you wherever you are. Hope you're safe. Hope you're fine.
0: Most inspired musical hero of any genre?
1: Oh boy, Prince. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, from a, yeah. I mean, now I'm like a you know honorary Minnesotan. Like oh, yeah, we're all yeah. proud of being Prince. Absolutely, yeah.
1: He is one of the most all-encompassing musicians of all time. He thinks about music from every angle and part of why his music is so complex is because he plays every instrument on so many of his tracks he thinks about everything at each level of the orchestration if you have never heard the prince album love sexy it's an album that's one continuous there's only one track but many songs he refused to cut them for the radio which is why many people haven't heard it it's an absolute masterpiece i'm amazed how few people know that album but you will not regret it it is a complete and total bop
0: okay listeners check it out on our spotify playlist. Most transformative performance experience?
1: I played Olivier Messiaen's Taronga at Tanglewood in 2016. It's a piece that's about an hour and a half long. It calls for about 115 something musicians. It requires someone to play an uh, Ans Martineau. and there are like four people in the world who play that. Could you it's describe an,
0: what it is? Yeah. So
1: an on note is an electronic instrument that is a keyboard and a ring with a string above it to create vibrato. It sounds sort of like a theremin, except even weirder. It also has this really, really insane left-hand big organ stop that you can push to create this big, like, wah effect. Playing the piece is very hard and very expensive, so it, it doesn't happen very often, but right. it's a 10-movement work about love I know that's a very basic idea, but it's music that is at first very bizarre and a little bit hard to penetrate. But when you do, you will discover some of the richest, deepest caring anybody has been able to put on paper. Imagine just hearing a all 115 people in an orchestra, double winds, double brass, huge everything, 10 basses, whatever your heart desires, playing a chord for 45 seconds. By the way, much longer than you think. Straight, unwavering quintuple forte. I know that sounds great. Trust me. No, it's glorious. I got to play it with Stephen Asbury. I have yet to feel a part of a sound that was so intensely powerful and human.
0: Wow, what a description.
1: <laughs> I literally love that piece to death.
0: No, man, I want to play it now. So.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Next piece you'd like to learn?
1: Oh, boy. I've been rather busy at work. I haven't thought about that. But how about let's go, uh, hey, I don't know, uh, Brahms' um, E minor cello sonata.
0: Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, we do it sometimes. We're coming for you. Yeah, no, please do. I want. We play cello rep a lot. Not every piece that the basses play from the cello, I think, is worth doing. Yeah. But not only, let's not even say successful. Let's say, does the qualities of the double bass, do they do something that is so inherently different than the cello that it's like worth putting on a bass player versus a cello? Yeah. Because, you know, I think a great piece to showcase this would be arpeggione sonata. Right, Schubert. I was about um,
0: to comment on that, but yeah, you about
1: to, Well, I think that that's a great piece because violists play it, cellists play it, bassists play it, guitarists play it. Schubert is so sing-songy that it doesn't actually, I don't think it has to be a cello. cello. But
0: that piece is not even supposed to be a cello piece. It's that's, true, yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be played on the arpeggione, which is a six string stringed instrument that yes, the closest with instrument- fr- With frets. <laughs> with frets, yeah. The yeah. closest instrument to that instrument is the cello. Cello, which is why cellos yes. play it. But that's a piece that
1: can be done across instruments because it already is being changed. But then there are pieces, you know, they were written for the cello, they were designed for that instrument that just makes more sense.
0: I must say though, when I witness a bassist playing Schubert Apeggione's sonata flawlessly, it really makes me a very humble person.
1: <laughs> it's really hard, yeah. yo. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean,
0: I mean, it's hard enough on cello. I can't I imagine know. what it's like. Yeah, that piece is freaking crazy
1: hard. Yeah. But it's so really worth hard. it. Oh. It's oh It's yeah. such a beautiful oh, yeah.
0: piece of music. Anyway, Chuck, you've done it. Congratulations. We're done with the Spitfire questions. <gasps> okay. That was tough. Chuck, can you tell me about your origin story as a bassist? How did you get into it? Why did you pursue it? And why do you keep pursuing it, maybe? <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a question I've yet to answer that last one. But um, <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. So I started playing instruments kind of like how many other people did. I played recorder in third grade. <laughs> and then I played... <laughs> was not expecting that. Hey, listen, New York public school system, you know, everybody plays recorder in third grade. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm... <laughs> is this, is, no, it's fine. I, I just, I didn't realize that this was that shocking. Of a,
0: uh, I don't know. I, I think it's funny that I'm shocked by it. So it's like <laughs> compounded <laughs> hilarity for me, but okay. It's not, I mean, I guess I, I, if I think about it, I did get a recorder in my hands at some point when I was a kid, but sure. it wasn't like mandated to me as a. In my well, I, I guess the reason that I bring it up is
1: because it's kind of like, where did any wanting to play an instrument come from? Because I will say this, my story on the double bass and coming to it, I actually have met quite a few bass players who came to it the same way and part of this is because Suzuki for a middle bass is like not nearly as prevalent you know what I mean yeah it certainly exists and there are fantastic teachers of it but playing the bass you know it's not like playing the violin or the piano where it's like you're five years old and your parents want you to like go and do that it's quite separate so the way I came to it was like this I played recorder next year I played clarinet Next year, I tried the trombone. I moved to Michigan when I was 11 from New York City. I moved to Detroit, Michigan. And then I played the tuba in sixth grade. And by the way, I actually played it for four years. But how did the bass happen? Well, my dad played electric guitar, and he loved classic rock. I, in middle school, began to love classic rock as well. Like The Who were my favorite band for a long time. My dad actually took me to see them live. What? Um I know. Awesome. The Palace of Auburn Hills, yeah, in like six or seven. But I wanted to try electric bass. So for all of middle school, I played electric bass and I like played in my parents' basement with like my long 13-year-old hair and braces and like played along to like rush tunes and yep. like prog rock, like yes, King Crimson and all of these things. Yeah. Yep. I'm happy to see that, that you appreciate the Yeah. Prog rock. I grew up <laughs> I grew up
0: with all that too. Yeah. So uh, I'm there with you.
1: Nerds across the US. I love it. Regardless though, I started to lean more into jazz after that. Do you know what a real book is? Actually, I'm curious. Have you ever heard of a real book?
0: Uh, I thought I did. And now I'm like, well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tell me so fake... then at least my listeners sure. know.
1: To those of you who have not played a lot of jazz, a real book, also sometimes known as a fake book, it's a collection of all of what's called the head of a jazz tune. It's literally a book that you can choose what clef it's in and you can jam to basically all of the great jazz standards that you have access to. And sometimes whether called fake books is because some that were, let's just say, copyright nebulous were massly distributed and stuff like that. And I had one. Ah. And my dad runs the Detroit Music Hall for the performing arts in Detroit. And so I knew a lot of jazz musicians there growing up, saw them. Long story short, I got into jazz. I started high school and where I went to high school actually had, um, and still to this day, has a very successful jazz band. I couldn't join.
0: Wait, I have to ask a quick oh, sure. question. You were joining at this point with electric bass?
1: Yes, with electric bass.
0: Okay, so you still haven't had the wooden instrument in your hand yet.
1: I have not at this point yet. Okay, I just wanted instrument. to
0: clarify because when you're sorry, talking yes. jazz, uh, it can go either excuse way. Excuse me, yeah. excuse me.
1: I wanted to join this jazz band. Dan White, the leader of the band, the teacher, told me, sorry, we already have two seniors playing bass. You're going to have to wait a year to audition. But in the meantime, why don't you join orchestra and learn some upright for when you come to the jazz band got it. So I was like, okay, cool. And there I met James Gross, who was the director of orchestras at my high school, who is one of the most supportive and lovely people I've ever met. I would like to give a huge shout out to him. You rarely come across such a person who inspires a lo- love of music and people like he does. So started playing an orchestra and I fell in love with it. I guess the end of the origin part of the story is that I ended up getting in contact with Alex Hanna, who was the principal double bass of Detroit at the time, and he was very young. He was 22, 23. He wanted very young. And then he was my first teacher I uh, was one of his first students and he became a great friend and mentor to this day. I mean, he's now principal of Chicago. Wow. Principal of the of the Chicago Symphony. So you one got lucky when it came to... Very, very lucky. I would say that I can't even begin to describe how much of whatever success I've had in music is attributed to being in the right place at the right time to learn music from these specific people. Yeah, These people are just a massive part of that, no doubt. I've run into people who have had similar stories to me, I think, on the bass because of this very reason where it's like, you almost kind of feel like a lot of the time you're coming at it this like misfit in the string family where it's just not codified. It's not set and put together. So when you run into these people who know it and support it, you're in. They are the reason that there's such a tightly knit community of double bass players because it is. It's a very small world. It's rare that I hear a name of a bass player and I don't know them.
0: There's definitely a cohort when it comes to the bass family. Let's put it that that's, way, right? That's
1: putting it mildly.
0: And it's funny because, you know, the stereotype of bassists is that, you know, when you see a congregate of bass players <laughs> together, all they talk about is how to play bass and the certain oh techniques God. and rosins and whatnot. And it's like, it's so <laughs> fascinating to me because I don't know, as you're saying, like there is a slight difference between violin, violoncello family to the bass, the tuning of the bass versus the violin and violon Sure tuning on a bass is in fourths and mm-hmm. we're in fifths so they parallel each other but they're just a bit different so there, and is it
1: is that small difference that creates this really large gulf of understanding between us even just that creates this long long list of things that have to be thought about a little differently on the instrument and um also the thickness I,
0: of your strings too the, oh yeah and the largeness of your instrument and there's different even ways of holding the bow that's like you oh, know, yeah i guess i was just overall commenting on the fact that bass players really find each other and they're really like buddies for life that especially happens
1: when you're young as fun as it is to talk about strings and rosin as you grow older and, and you grow a little more into the maturity of your musicianship I think it's important that you start thinking of music a little more seriously than that, where it's like the kind of strings you're playing and the kind of rosin you're using are not going to determine how well you do in an audition. Sure, and fair enough. Listen, or- Patty, there are message boards dedicated to what strings you should use and what rosin combination you should use to win an audition. Like it, wow, it, it's, really? It, oh yeah, it's hilarious. As you get older, like that element of the fraternity, sorority of bass players, that kind of starts to go away, but the friendship certainly does remain. I mean, like some of the people that I went to school with, these bass players, you know, are these friends that I will have forever and one of them is now one of my colleagues Nina De Caesar, and I Oh I know to, Nina Yeah yeah, you know Oh from yeah. Tanglewood probably Yeah, yeah
0: absolutely I'm No
1: Nina and I are here together in the section of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and who knew you know that we'd both end up in the same place but we did so that's all I, I have to say about that idea of this space family because it's certainly there of course it's just the reason it exists is because of how odd the instrument is in comparison but over time the differences between us and the celli and the, and the violas and violins you know it, it becomes less of this big barrier between us, you know, it, it erodes
0: over time. I also even want to touch a little bit, the tightness of the bass posse is also transcendent to even the actual physical instruments. I remember at least talking to like Nash. Oh um, yeah. About certain bases and how rare it is to ha- find them in circulation, being sold again, because these instruments are much more difficult to preserve because of their largeness. They're easier yes. to crack. They're easier to have you know certain maintenance issues, or they've even transformed drastically.
1: Absolutely, I could briefly touch on that. First off, also Nash, how you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> he and I know each other. As- Everything you said is true about old instruments. Also, let's call it the engineering behind making a double bass. The knowledge of what the instrument. Was was and what it needed to be and luthiers that made them has improved so much since then that even these old instruments that were relatively well preserved to be frank suck because they're just not well i mean sure the wood is old and so it's open and stuff like that and yada 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 but literally the design of making the instrument has improved so much since then that you can find these old instruments that it's like yeah sure they have pedigree they're from this place they have this stamp and this serial number, but they still kind of suck. And, Interesting. And, I didn't realize it's,
0: that. Mm-hmm. It's
1: not like the violin, you know? It's tr- I mean, and by the way, do not get me wrong. There are some incredible old instruments out there. And, you know, at some point
0: I, I plan on searching for one myself. But that's the rarity factor is finding yes. one that has the old wood, as you're mentioning, but also is technically you can play it. Yeah, I mean, they have so many problems. Like, Patty, I could go on
1: forever. Yeah, no, no, that. let's just, okay. Yeah, well, it's fine. We, but later, later. Yeah, yeah let's
0: Ch- bring epi- Focus back to your Chuck, story.
1: Chuck, Chuck episode two. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah. My life changed forever when I got really, really, really into the bass. As many of us did, you know, like I was just like a kid in high school who was kind of unhappy being in high school. You know, I didn't really particularly find myself attached to any of the subjects I was learning. And I did try, but I never really progressed in knowledge of many of the academic courses I was taking. I I actually kind of struggled with some. It, It didn't come very... Like, math especially did not come easily to me. And it took tutoring and trial and error to, like, even get through it and stuff like that. But the base started to make sense to me. Actually, I would also like to mention that one of the greatest things that Alex Hannah my old teacher, did for me, every single week, he had me print out the bass part to a great work. And it wasn't even necessarily about perfecting it, but he's like, put on a recording and play along, you know, listen to this music and discover music this way. And it just opened my mind up to how fun and amazing it was. And then by the time I was 16, I was like, you know what, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Wow. Did you wake up
0: just one morning with that revelation or what? No no it wasn't
1: any grand moment like that it was more like because both of my parents were performing artists ah okay. you know I should also mention but again I had the cards stacked in my favor the whole way i can't mention that enough i really am grateful forever for all these people in my life who really, like pushed me in this direction but yeah. more than any one moment as time progressed finding myself be happier and happier and happier and there there was definitely a moment when I was like okay I'm applying to school for music you and i you know we did that and many Many, many, many of our friends did that but there are people I think like explaining it to people who have never seen it or know what it is like that's a crazy thing to do to a lot of people I felt ostracized
0: when I decided to do that I mean there was other compounding things from my experience but I was like an outsider for that year that I decided
1: honestly Patty it's like really crazy for me to try to like stretch my mind's eye even back to a time before all of this you know because music it's a crazy crazy adventure and when you really decide this is the thing you're going to do you kind of discard your old life and get a new one because it requires such this large piece of the pie of everything that you are and everything that you do it all starts to tie itself into each other and this is something that paul ellison my teacher talks about the concept that you truly are invested in music when it's hard to walk around without the rhythm of your own steps Starting to become this this soundtrack to the music you're thinking about. Everything you walk by and everything you see and smell. There's just this little bit of it that reminds you of like oh right this thing I'm working on or like that thing I'm working on in music. It's both uh, awful. And wonderful. (laughs) It it is, though. It's both awful and wonderful how inescapable it can be at at times, and especially in music school. But it's really hard to remember Mm -hmm. the beginning parts of it because of how deep we dive into it. I don't remember Charles Paul not the bass player, to be honest, at this point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It really becomes a part of your identity. So you went and did auditions for undergraduate Mm -hmm. degree in music, and you fell into the lap of Rice University.
1: (laughs) Boy, did I. That's an understatement. I'm a six-year RICE student. Yeah. uh, That means you
0: did an undergraduate degree and a master's degree at the same, which I mean, obviously for kinetic, that was amazing because-
1: (laughs) I didn't even know that that was an option. But then as I was in undergrad, I kept noticing that all of these people that I had seen for years, they kept sticking around. I was like, huh. They're also back this year. I wonder what year that is. And I was like, oh, right. Because you can just do another degree if you apply and audition and stuff like that. And I mean, I'm very happy that I did. Not only for Rice, I... Love the city of Houston, Texas. I am completely in love with that city. I am made fun of quite a bit for how much I love it because I'm always like, oh man, like here in Baltimore, and i would be like, some friends of mine go and get Mexican food. I'm like, man, this Mexican food, gotta tell you, I live, I don't know if you knew this, but I like lived in Houston for years. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. Imagine now then I'm that person that's like, I'm from San Diego. This is not Mexican food. Sure. Exactly. exactly, But I have it like, you know, multi layered because then I also lived in Houston. Exactly. Because then
1: you went to Houston as well. Mm -hmm. Although I definitely do appreciate the concept that Californian Mexican food and Texas Mexican food are very different things. I agree. Yes, but yeah, six years, it was not only just Rice, just being in Houston. It's a fascinating city. And now being back on the East Coast, there are so many amazing music schools and so many, you know, amazing programs and people can get to each other very quickly with the train or the bus or driving or yada, yada, yada. Rice in Houston is it's locked down it's all there it's like this playground we have that's just ours as I Rice see. students I you know see. what I mean it's not like in New York where it's like oh like they are going to Juilliard or MSM or Manis or mm-hmm. you know or, or like Boston, Boston. Mm-hmm. yeah of course Boston you know as so I'm many sure, music you know.
0: schools yep
1: yeah of course it's more like at Rice it's like we are the Shepherd School of Music and we have no rivals and we do what? kind of all the things
0: there is the University of Houston there too there is the
1: University of Houston of course. It, the Moore School is fabulous. I more mean that the...
0: Yeah, but I know what you mean. It's like an oasis in a way.
1: Let me. I, mean, I did not mean, of course, to insult <laughs> my colleagues from the Moore School of Music. I'm more referring to the mentality of what Rice is for. Rice is a very specific place with a lot of very specific goals. Yes. You know, I as a bass player, Paul Ellison, I'll never forget our first couple lessons. He's like, hey, this is the repertoire. And he has the stacks and stacks of these orchestral works for us to learn. He's like, we're going to Go through every single one, you know, wow. and we did. You know, that is so different
0: years. from a cellist to a bassist or a violinist <laughs> mm-hmm. to a bassist. We don't sit down with our orchestra repertoire and go through, you know, the hard. Well, we have extra oh, classes, yeah. but it's not like our primary thing that we bring oh, to our primary teacher. You know, it's
1: everything to us. I mean, it's not everything. We we of course do recitals and have great rep, but the core of the understanding is most certainly the orchestral repertoire. And you know, me and the colleagues I knew, we became warriors. We've trained every day to like run these excerpts and have these ideas about it. And by the way, I should also mention, while I predominantly studied with Paul Ellison, I mean, Rice is blessed to have two of the greatest bass players and pedagogues of all time. There's also Timothy Pitts, who I spent quite a bit of time with at Rice as well. And who is one of the most amazing and positive. He's like this like stonemason who just, he finds this way to like chip these things out of you and express amazing things. But I just felt like I had to mention him because I'm talking about Paul so as well. But for me, Like I spent all of these years submerged within this program about the orchestral repertoire and further study, comparing recordings to each other, you know, spending all this time, you know, and score, course score study and bringing it back to Kinetic. That's actually, I feel kind of in a way like the perspective that I brought to Kinetic that maybe some of the other musicians had not had. Eventually, um, I started taking auditions.
0: When was your like first audition?
1: My first audition was for the Houston Symphony in March of 2017. I got very lucky, and I did advance in my first audition. <laughs> little did wow. I know, I would I would not advance again <laughs> ah! for you know for a little while. But no, I I got quite lucky. I also had gotten on their sub list earlier that year, so I spent some time subbing with them. If you want a brief rundown of like my audition journey, it's kind of interesting, I suppose. But everybody's kind of got one. The Journey is very different for everyone. I took that audition and then I took Detroit my hometown having studied with the principal there Kevin Brown is one of my great friends and another one of the most incredible people I've ever known and I did not advance and I was like okay well that sucks but
0: was that something you weren't expecting basically you're kind of expecting no
1: the thing about auditions is that I learned this the best by winning one which is the weirdest thing where it's like every committee each person on a committee has this very specific table of contents what are they looking for what do they want and it is so impossible Possible to guess what that could possibly be. But of course, you know, there are, you know, the golden rules being in tune and playing yep. in time and, yep. and having a basic understanding of it, you know, but I found success in my first audition. And then I went through the first year of my master's, I would unequivocally say was the lowest point of my time at Rice for sure. I ran into very little success, and I was having these a lot of questions about myself, like the music I was making and what I liked and stuff like that. And you know, speaking of Tanglewood, like I'd gone to Tanglewood twice, Mm -hmm. so we bass players can't go a third time. So I was done with that, and then I applied to other music festivals. I didn't get in to anywhere. What? Yeah, I know. I, I got way too. How dare thin. they? I, I'll get defensive <laughs> for you. I mean, listen, they made the decision and that that's fine. And I'm not bitter about it anymore. But there was a time, and because at Rice, you know, everyone's talking about what auditions are you taking? Oh you my know, God. What, yep. what festivals are you yep. going to? Yep. You know, it was certainly a big thing. And and so I left for the summer of 2018, a little bit with like my tail between my legs. And I had the summer of not a lot to do. So I started mm-hmm. trying things. I was like playing music with amateurs. And I was, I learned this uh, Jacob Druckmann piece called Valentine, which is a really insane piece for the double bass yeah. to all you listening out there check it out the piece is one of the greatest for the double bass ever
0: okay and
1: you'll see what i mean oh uh, you need a timpani mallet because you actually hit the instrument a bunch oh awesome. like it's not just chaos it's very specifically written jacob jackman was a genius but regardless i found success in auditions when i really was able to let go of the idea that i could guess what the committee wanted you know i went there and i took the houston audition again actually and i didn't advance at all mm-hmm. but that was my secondary my masters but i wasn't deterred i was still Happy with how I sounded, and then I was in the finals for the Dallas Symphony. That was my fifth audition, and then Baltimore. I almost didn't even take the audition. You know, it was summertime. I was driving around. I just left Houston. I had just finished Spoleto. I was really tired, but I was going to go to New York to play with the Opera Company um, Teatro Nuovo. We were playing gut strings and stuff. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, totally different. But I was like, you know what? Um, I've never been to Baltimore. Chelsea Kim, who I went to Rice with, had won a job and was living in Baltimore, and I was like, you know, this would be fun to go see my friend and I had been working on the list just was like you know I know all these extra. I've been working on them for years mm-hmm. I might as well go and see how it went and then um Three days went by and then I won.
0: Yeah. So Was that just like a, like every time you advanced, was that just a huge shock for you or? Yes. Well, okay.
1: yes and no. I was happy with the way that I played on the whole, Mm -hmm. but no matter what, I had been so discouraged by the way that the audition process had went that no matter how well I thought I played, it could in my mind have gone either way.
0: Right. You're desensitized to your own (laughs) attachment to your playing. Yeah, I get that. Yes.
1: And that's definitely the thing that I would like to say to anybody just with auditions where it's like you just have to keep playing in a way that you like regardless of the way it goes because you never know like there were rounds I thought that I played in Detroit that I thought sounded better than ones I played here mm-hmm. there were auditions I took for smaller orchestras that I didn't advance in at all thought I played well smaller than Baltimore and then I came mm-hmm. to Baltimore and played this way and then they liked it and then it worked out and my life changed forever yeah I really can't emphasize enough that you will never know you just won't it's a fool's errand to try to predict to really what they
0: Yeah, yeah. To predict
1: what they want and how it will go. Mm -hmm. You just got to (laughs) go.
0: You just got to, yeah. You have to play for yourself and for the enjoyment of what you love in the music or in the like it,
1: no one. If you don't like it, no one else will. Right. That really, even looking back on it now, that's why my first year of my master's was so miserable was because Mm -hmm. I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. I was trying to play in a way that wasn't me. And that is the biggest mistake you can make is to truly go against the grain of what you like, because that's why we started this theoretically at all, is that we like the music we're playing. If you're not satisfying that, then boy, like think about it like this. If you win a job playing in a way that you don't like to play, You will be expected to play the way you won. Right. And you will be unhappy. If you win a job being somebody you aren't, you're going to have to keep being that person that isn't you. And that's going to make you unhappy.
0: I mean, (laughs) not to make a joke out of it, but I mean, Chuck, that sounds like relationship advice too.
1: No, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) If you're
0: in a relationship with somebody and and you don't like the
1: person that they think you are, then yeah, it's going to (laughs) suck.
0: Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. Um, I just, it was like, that's literally what people say.
1: Yeah. All right. Well. Yeah. This is love line. With, yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. But fair enough. So now you're in Baltimore, and yes. you've been with them.
1: Well, it's it's coming up on one year. I should explain that there was a lengthy trial process. The position that Nina and I auditioned for, and then we given trials as were, were principal of the orchestra, and then they decided to offer us both a section position. And then I moved to Baltimore right at the top of February. So I wow. Had, I had two tri- yeah. yeah. Yeah, I played in the orchestra for five weeks before everything got everything shut, down, shut so. down.
0: Can you tell sure. us about what's continuing to happen with Baltimore Symphony? You're telling yes. me that you've been working and you've been able to go in the hall and oh, produce yeah. concerts, at least recorded concerts. Tell me more about that. The Baltimore Symphony Orchestra is back. We have been working now,
1: no audiences, and we have the expert guidance of Dr. Stephen Ganji from Johns Hopkins University, an epidemiologist. He has been reviewing all of our guidelines. We have been distanced. We have been masks and we've been recording. Honestly, it's been crazy because I've been going into, I should also explain that we have two different cohorts. One cohort is in the morning, one cohort is in the afternoon. We work from Tuesday to Saturday, then we have the weekend off. I can't describe how good it is for the soul, (laughs) you know, after all the time that we spent apart to be back. But the way that we are doing concerts is a little different because uh, we just actually came out with our first episode of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra sessions, where we are combining our recordings of our performances that we make with musician interviews some like backstage stuff behind the scenes things it's almost like a sandwich of uh, musical content interview rehearsal content recording interview you know and that is available by the way if you would go to uh, bsooffstage.org uh, you can access our content available. It is $10 per episode or $20 for all access for the month. Plenty of really amazing things going on there. More ever to come. You know, we, we've we recorded a ton. You know, we, we are following every guideline to the letter. Everyone's been very, very good about it. We are constantly reviewing everything, you know, to make sure that we are being as safe as possible. And we are very, very fortunate. No I, kidding. I think if... You see the things that we're doing. You're going to enjoy how personal it feels because we really want to emphasize that everything that we are doing is in an attempt to involve the people that love the symphony as much as we can. Yeah, it's,
0: yeah it's, 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 you it's miss all, your audience.
1: Oh, we miss, we miss, as we all do. You know, yeah. we, we miss the audience so much, but
0: this is truly what it means to be adaptive to this kind of environment.
1: Absolutely. Adaptive is the best word, I think, for it. Thinking on our feet. Musicians are inventive and creative people inherently and the times that are the hardest can often inspire the greatest creativity and I've been so amazed I mean even things that people just do on their own personal level like making you know like acapella videos on their own stuff like that or like master classes I love the music content like of course hiding behind the music stand you know this started also during this time absolutely you know it's like what a time of extreme and colorful content creation that's our contribution from the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra think of it like a tv show every Wednesday night Sit down, get your popcorn, get a drink, tune in to see what on earth we know we're doing at the
0: Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony of Hall. Awesome! Are you of ready course. to take a break? Sure, absolutely. Great. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So, before the break, now I have sushi in my arms, but alas, one day I will meet John Luke.
1: Absolutely, you'll meet John Luke.
0: Okay. But, John Luke is a great transition into talking about your transition from conservatory life to becoming a professional musician. Can you tell me about what that is like for you or what you're discovering about yourself?
1: The first thing to, I guess, recant is the very profound realization I had in my first couple of weeks of work that I had no interests. Yeah. Very blunt statement, but I moved to Baltimore. I had an apartment. I was still putting things in it. You know, I didn't really have very many things yet. Still, I had been living in Detroit with my brother for the period of time that was between the audition and starting the the job at the orchestra. Also, I had been working at Michigan State with Kevin Brown as like a TA performance diploma. You know, which was amazing, but. I had spent all of this time getting ready for my trials. So it was over. You know, the trials were over, I had a job, contract was signed, moved to Baltimore. Here I am. Plop. This thing that, you know, what?
0: I said what? like plop, you're plopped into Oh, plop- the-
1: yeah, you it's like you're just there. After all of this time of working and dreaming and thinking and imagining like what it would be like to like move to a new city and start a job. And as especially having gone to Rice and and focusing on auditions for so long, we had been dreaming about it for so long. Right. So I remember, I'll never forget it, it was a Saturday night, and we had the Sunday off the next day. I went out after the concert with some of these new friends I had in the orchestra. You know, we played a great concert. We went out. It was fun. I came back to my apartment, and then I went to bed. I woke up on Sunday, and everybody was like, oh, I'm going to like practice today, or I'm going to like do this thing. I'm going to do that thing. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I was sitting on this couch just being like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> right? You know, like, what do I do? I have this time, you know what I mean? Like time to like, you know, I had already kind of worked on the music for next week. I had spent some time practicing. I made some breakfast, you know, but even the breakfast I made was kind of bland because I was so used to like, oh, I have 10 minutes before I have to like get to class or go to rehearsal or something. You know, I I really had this very deep and profound realization that in the years that I spent preparing for the life after the job, I hadn't given any time or thought to- What that life would look like. (laughs) What what that life was gonna look like. Yeah, like what I I wanted out of life. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was just crazy because it's like, I started to meet and become good friends with people who had been playing in the orchestra for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Uh, These people who have been here for this amount of time and you know they're all stellar musicians and they spend all this time thinking about music but also they have interests
0: I mean I'm sorry to interject but I just love this because this is essentially like why I created this podcast was because absolutely sure like of course we have our lives and the lives that we were in school that environment is so hard to describe until you're in it it's yes it's so immersive there's like I think there's no other way of me describing it just other than immersive You are immersed in music, you're live breathing and dying for music every single day. It's your entire goal to become a quote unquote, successful professional musician. And that again, as what you're saying, I'm reiterating, you don't ever really plan for what it's going to look like once you do get to that stage in your life when you're saying, yeah, I am employed. I am getting paid to do this. I'm in a symphony. I'm in a string quartet. I'm freelancing or, you know, whatever avenue you go down. And so part of me was like, I know that we are more complex people than just music our entire lives is not just about live breathing and dying for music as well there are other things so anyway i'll get off again my soapbox
1: no 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 but that's so true is that it's almost as if music is like a music school i should say is like like this bubbling oil that you just get put into and your day-to-day life is kind of volatile in a way where it's like oh i'm gonna be doing this with this thing and this that thing and then oh i'm gonna go see these people and i'm but at the end of the day most of the time it comes back to working and working on music and stuff like that it's like You treat not only yourself, but the people around you in the same way for a lot of the time you're there. It can really come down to that. So I think that because we had talked a little bit about comparing audition taking music making to relationships and dating. Yeah. In the time that I was in music school, I knew many, many of my great friends and colleagues who maintained this idea that we are musicians. They go on like Tinder or they go on these dating apps and stuff and they see people who don't play music. Mm -hmm. professionally or as their modus operandi. They see these people who aren't like us and they say, I don't know if I could seriously date somebody who isn't a musician. Right. And I say, why? And they say, well, I just think that they're probably going to be boring. Ah, interesting. And to put this frankly, no, 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 no. They, these people... Who do other things you know what i mean they they have a job sure but they also go home and do other things and have they have a just...
0: nine to five they yeah. have a des- then, they can close the door yeah. on their job yeah. and do something else yeah it is so the
1: opposite of what you think they are not boring we are boring we spend all day doing the same thing over and over and in over again. one
0: room in for- one
1: room <laughs> And we go almost nowhere and do almost nothing except this one thing. They, just because they don't understand maybe some kind of, you know, higher plane of understanding about, uh, you know, Beethoven or Wagner or Strauss or yada, 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 that does not make us interesting inherently. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, yes, these are interesting things Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. but the amount of conversations that it's like, I mean, I'm not speaking to you. Obviously I'm speaking to like this hypothetical, like this other musician. It's like the the amount of conversations that we have, especially bass players Mm -hmm. that come down to like, what kind of like, oh yeah. Like I tried like a 60%, 40% mix of hops bass rosin and Colstein bass rosin. Do you think there's anybody out there other than us (laughs) that thinks that's interesting? It's like, no, that's not the case. You know, (laughs) so joining the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and moving to this new place and everything I just said was this really amazing, like wake up call to me that it's like, you know what it's a time not only to work hard at the instrument but it's like it's a time to work hard on like being a person discovering in, in, in who instance, you are out just disco- like discovering who i am what do they, i like
0: or maybe yeah. can i even ask because you said you don't remember the chuck paul you were before bass now is yeah. the time to like rediscover that but fuse it with your love of bass right
1: yes absolutely well that's the thing is that it's like well i mean i will say covid made this a lot easier <laughs> well <laughs> playing sure. video games was one thing that I, that I used to do when i was younger for a long time and I would do it again but also um things that i never before had thought to try i started doing watercolors a couple months ago that's awesome dude <laughs> um i definitely can tell you i am not very good at it but, hey, <laughs> practice but, makes, but
0: you know practice
1: makes perfect it's true but it's beautifully calming and soothing it's almost kind of like applying the focus i do to practice but to like mixing paint and it's so low stakes my tenure doesn't rely on it. yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, it, my dental insurance doesn't rely upon how well I can watercolor. It's just a thing I do that. And especially cooking, having the time and not only, not only the time to do, but the time to fail, mm, you know, like, like I have the time to try things I've never tried before in the kitchen. And frankly, I've failed at them the first couple of times I tried them, but I had that mental space to think about what I wanted to do differently and what I wanted to improve and, and what to do this time and what to do that time and something that had absolutely nothing to do with the double bass. It had nothing to do with it. And that sort of applying the lessons I learned as a music student in the sense of caring about something and getting invested in it and becoming more learned about it, but something that had absolutely nothing to do with music. It's been a joy to surprise even myself with the things that I like to do. Started cycling the summer, again, not very good at it, but I get better at at each time I do it. And that's important. I
0: love everything you're saying right now because basically everyone's got to start somewhere at any activity. No one, okay. At everything. It's very rare for someone to be a prodigy at anything. Like we think of a prodigy as a musician thing to do or whatever. Like it's very, very rare to do that. Everyone starts somewhere. But what I love about what you're saying is that essentially what you're bringing to all the activities you're trying out is the musician's way of experimenting it's like, you know what I mean? Sure. It's You are still Absolutely. being a musician. Everything oh, that yeah. you learned in conservatory or your tool was the base, but what yes. you inherently learned was the process of discovery, the process of failing, <laughs> the process yes. of perfecting and yes. figuring out what you do like and what you don't like and figuring out what your voice is. Yes. I mean, I guess when people think about musicians, we think about us as in pop culture, as these eccentric people. And as you're saying, sure. like, we actually are kind of boring. <laughs>
1: like, no, we're boring.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, we learn how to adapt. We learn how to yeah. find certain things that maybe were, are completely unrelated to the tool, but yet that there is a skill set that we learn. Absolutely. I hope that's not too. Pre- I mean,
1: I, I think if you were to ask the question, what does it mean to live a musical life? Because I think that that's something that it's a phrase I hear on a semi regular basis, you know, like living a musical life. And not only as a musician, but I think that at the end of the day, the never ending project. The concept of that, the quest that can't be finished is learning an instrument, you know what I mean? It's something that will never, ever, ever end. That's so- And that's why we do it in a way because how awful would that be to reach this impassable wall of what you can do on a thing? And I think that approaching other things in life In this way, trying to cook these things that are much beyond my understanding of taste and much beyond my understanding of of the science behind it. The chefs live musical lives.
0: Oh my God. Painters live musical lives.
1: Athletes live musical lives. And what I mean by that is that they have this thing or this goal that no matter how much they do it, it is never done, it's never perfect. And to have ever the larger dragon to slay, ever the greater thing to build, that's the point of playing music, I think, for us. At the very
0: least on the personal level. It's not to say that even if it's not quote unquote perfect, that doesn't negate the performance. That doesn't negate the dish. That doesn't negate any of the experiences you had. It's just part of the journey of discovery. And and climbing, you know, reaching that new level of progress, really. I think it's clear to discuss that because I do think sometimes in music school, I at least again, I can speak from my own experience. We strive for this ideal of what perfection is. And that is such a redhead there's really is, as what you're saying about your audition story, there's really no such thing as what perfection is. It's who you are as a yeah. genuine person, authentic person.
1: That is actually a really good way to put it, is the authenticity of your craft. And I would also think about it like this. Trying these other things now, because it comes back to music from, from the circle of, of trying these other things, is that What trying to be, I guess, quote, unquote, a regular person, but but that's not the, I guess that's not a very good way to put it. A non-musician? Regular person. A non-musician is trying to put yourself in the perspective of the audience that you play for. Mm. It's like, at the end of the day, we make music for the people who don't know as much about music as we do. And we play these things that to them, they believe that, oh, how could that get any better? You know, that was wonderful. And I enjoyed that so much. And To be an amateur cook, to be an amateur cyclist, to be an amateur painter is to both be the performer and the audience at the same time. Where I try to make a dish and I do all of the things that I'm trying to do as the performer. And then I then get to be the audience and judge the taste. Where the taste of the thing that I've made you know, I will either disappoint myself or I'll impress myself. And there have been, I mean, definitely more disappointments than, than, than impressing. At I'm, the time. At the time, you know, uh, but the times that I would impress myself, I became the audience to my own performance where I got to view both sides of this coin because I've gone to restaurants and I tasted the food of these people and I taste it and I say, how could anyone make something so good? Mm-hmm. What could be better about this? But in their minds, they are always asking what can be better about it. Mm -hmm. And in the very same way, now I have a new perspective of the own music that I make, where I try then to see from the amateur audience's perspective of the things that I make. It's been very good for my mental health to play and to be like, you know, I can be obsessive about this and I probably will, but I have four strings strapped over a wooden box and I made a, a sound that I, at least a part of me, found very pleasing. And. There are people who would listen to that and say, wow, how do you do that? You know, and, and I think for me, having other interests has taught me the value of the thing that I do every day. Because I was so knotted up about it. I was so out of sorts with the, uh, the naivety of not knowing that I didn't even really know when to enjoy the thing that I made. Because it took trying something so totally new that I had nothing. I like It's like trying to imagine back when I first started playing the bass. When was the first time that I made a sound that I was like, wow, I really like that sound, you know? And trying to live that way has made me immensely happier. And I would recommend it. I mean, to anybody struggling with playing an instrument right now, because we all constantly do.
0: Yeah, just that's try another to... statement.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, just, just try to see it through the eyes. Of somebody who is amazed by what you do.
0: Yeah. I, well, the point I wanted to make in what you're saying though is that at one point you had that question of yourself when you're saying, how does yeah. that person do it? How did that yes. person create this? How does Edgar Meyer do this? Or what? I mean, just to bring up. Yeah. Places.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I continue to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah. How, or, does, like, how does
1: Edgar do it? Yeah. I have my mind so continuously blown by Edgar all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, no, but my... Okay, so mine is like when I was nine years old, I was just starting cello and my teacher was telling me that it's really hard to play on the C string. And there was a Mm. moment when Edgar Meyer was in town soloing or something, and he came to my high school, my eventual high school, I should say, and he gave a master class with our orchestra there, which is kind of insane to think about him. That's amazing. I know, right? Holy crap, yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And at the end, you can ask Edgar... anything and I raised oh. my little dinky hand and I was like is it really hard <laughs> to play on the e-string which is the lowest string on the bass right yeah yeah like yeah. that's the dumbest yeah. thing as a professional musician to like ask the like biggest named bass player of all time but he I, gave me I, I but would, he... I wouldn't totally agree with that but yeah sure or at least you know pop culture I mean he's in like goat rodeo and is that what you're oh, sure I mean I her? just
1: I personally like playing on the e-string is freaking hard oh
0: <laughs> okay okay yeah, I yeah, thought yeah, you were yeah. negating this like his st- stature no 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 no,
1: okay, no, okay, no, okay. no, 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 just yeah. like I want to ask Edgar how he does an
0: well, okay, yeah. but you know, like everyone else in the room, I felt like when I asked that question, sure, everyone sure, else sure, in the room, like just like did this really cathartic sigh of like, oh, why the stupid question? Mm-hmm. And then he was like, no, no, no. And he, I don't remember his answer, of course, but like I remember him kind of validating why I was asking this question. And sure. I um, mean, anyway, that's my story about Edgar Meyer. But I think, no, I guess it's the wonder that. part that maybe was part of why that memory came to mind was because I had that wonder. I didn't understand how someone could pull a string to create that sound. And To create it consistently, too, is just... That's the craft of mastery and mastering something, right?
1: We forget all the time that what we do as musicians is miraculous. I I was just magic, yeah, I mean, basically. Absolutely. Also, uh, it is both of these things and all of these things, you know. We take it so for granted. It's like walking and talking and breathing and eating to us at this point after all this time we've spent with it. But putting a bow on the string, there was a time for all of us when that was... So foreign and bizarre. Yeah. To go back to Paul Ellison, one of the most brilliant things he frequently instructs is because he teaches pedagogy at Rice. First lesson of pedagogy. I'll never forget it. He says, take your bass and play it the wrong way. Put your right hand on the strings, left hand on the bow, and just try that for a second. And he said, that's what it feels like to someone who has never held the instrument before. You might have forgotten, but that's what that feels like. And how foreign and bizarre it is. And, and that to him is the first way to crack the code of trying to teach this thing that you know so well. And and I, I think that to bring it all back, how foreign it felt to me to just be a guy, <laughs> you know, just to like be a person that wasn't affiliated with the Shepherd School of Music. I had a position within an Exxon orchestra and it mattered when I was there and it mattered that I worked and thought about it. And I did, you know, but after the day is over, it felt foreign to me. It's yours, you know. And so now to get to experience the wonder again of trying all of these new things, the wonder and the magic. In a way, like coming out of music school, it's felt truly like how you felt like seeing Edgar that first time. Like, how do these people do it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, how do they just be? You know, every day it's a new, it's a new task, I'd say.
0: Yeah. The other part of finding that wonder in these new activities is realizing how instinctive you mm. were towards music and then yes. not taking that for granted. That's kind of a weird sure. way of putting this, but I think that it's humbling, I guess is my point, yeah. right? I feel like in a lot of ways, we have very similar realizations in our life, at least when you're telling me your story and where you are now, because I also had a period of my life here in Minnesota that I was not sure. I only knew what music was and maybe said I had these outside interests, but I never really actively participated in them. And it took me a while to even also go out and discover new activities that I might enjoy and experiment that way. Yeah, it is a sort of a waking up call from getting out of a conservatory environment to living a normal life like everyone else is doing and catching up in that way. But out of all those activities, what has stuck out to you the most to be, you know, maybe one that you want to pursue for the rest of your life? I would say definitely cooking. I should again reiterate that this is not to say that I have gained any
1: artisanal knowledge in my time since (laughs) beginning (laughs) it, you know, a thing that we all do or most of us do, it, you know, it's a central part of our home. Every step of it is so fascinating. Selecting the things you, or even being inspired, you know, the you have to have an idea in your head of what it is that you want to make. You start with an idea. You start with this inkling of the way your body's feeling and, or something you've seen, or in a way that we get inspired with music, you know, from another recording or from another thing, or just something that we want to listen to. A recipe comes into your head and you want to make it then what's the next step you know if we're going to go metho- it's it's methodical in the same way that music is where you know then the next step go to the store and select each of these things and oh you know you're looking at lemons and you're picking and choosing and comparing you're using your finer senses you know your sight and your smell and your feel touch to to make these decisions and again also still applicable to music you know when you're listening and your ear is finally crafting its idea of what it wants to hear from this thing you know then you know the main event you get set up and you have all of your everything you need your utensils and all your ingredients are laid out and you begin the methodical process of putting it together chopping and dicing and preparing or using all of the knowledge you have and then going back to your recipe like going back to your teacher you know for a cross reference to are you doing the right thing you know and then you start cooking it's like the performance you're not only smelling how it all is but you're also listening you're listening for sizzle and crackle and pop you know, among all these these separate things going on right now. You're gathering all this information and you're trying to time it all out perfectly, you know, and you know, you assemble it. And then in a way, the performance is over before you take the first bite. The product is what it is. It's finished. Well, that's
0: what you're saying is you like know? the moment that you take the first bite is the instant you become the audience member.
1: The instant you become the audience because then it is your place that you assume judgment. And that really is what it is, you know, and, and not to put it in a negative light, but it is, it's judgment. It's trying to... um Uh, Maybe
0: assessment might be.
1: (laughs) Maybe assessment is better, sure. You know, but you take that first bite. And you know why cooking is so applicable to this? Is because at the end of the day, no matter what preparation went into it, the taste is all that matters. Mm -hmm. Or not just the taste, but the sensation of having that bite. If it tastes bad, well, you know how it's like, you know, you'll have a performance and it's like, well. Sure, it was like super out of tune and out of time, but you know, the articulation was pretty good. That means something to you Mm -hmm. as a performer. And that's important, by the way, because you have to build these skills. But as an audience member, that doesn't really mean anything now, does it? You know, all that matters is that experience. So in the same way with cooking, it's like, well, you know, I guess this fish filet I did, you know, has bones in it that, you know, are sticking out and tastes like crap. But at the very least, the marinade was good. It's like, sure, that's fine. but. If the experience isn't there, then the assessment is made. That to me has been interesting because I've been able to do these things that just take hours and long periods of time. And uh, yeah, it's, it's lent me this fresh perspective to making music. And not only that, there's nothing like the feeling of getting better each time. Something improves. Some small thing that makes all the difference in the world. Some realization that you might not have had the time before. Some synapses connected. And that's satisfying each and every time.
0: Right. So Chuck, can I ask you two final questions? Mm-hmm. What, in your opinion, is the most common misconception of classical music and the classical music world?
1: Let me it brief. That we don't like any other kind of music.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really important. Uh,
1: yeah, right off the bat, the most misconceived thing. We like all kinds of music. We enjoy the, many of the same things that non-classical musicians enjoy. And also, yes, we wear tuxes all the time, but also we like to wear street clothes and we like to do all the normal things,
0: too. That was short and sweet. Mm-hmm. After all the impact that COVID has done to classical music, what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession?
1: I think that COVID has taught us the value of supporting each other's content, supporting each other's ideology in music. When we have such a common enemy you know, of a thing that threatens the health of each other, our petty differences in music seem to just disappear. I would hope that this makes us... Very, when we really can collaborate in person together, I would hope that we are really down to just listen to each other and have a really, really good time oh, I just can't wait to hear you all again. You know, in person. Yeah, yeah, for real. No, you, know, but- you and Kinetic and all these people, like that's all I had to say is, I, oh boy, I just, I just can't wait.
0: I have to say that is a unique answer. I have not heard that answer yet from anyone who okay. I've asked, which is great. I mean, because it's true. We, I mean, people say it in the vein that there are way more live stream concerts happening. People can access sure. their concerts. but it's different in a sense because yeah, okay, sure. There's all this content out on the internet, but it's not where you are actively sitting and watching and supporting your colleagues so sure. far. I think it's yeah. important. Thanks for that answer. Chuck, are there any platforms or websites for our listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects uh, or if you want to talk about the Bonesome or mm. Symphony Orchestra stuff again? Or? Sure. I have taken
1: a social media hiatus for the last couple months actually. I started COVID off with putting out a lot of stuff on Instagram at Broke Impresario, Broke underscore Impresario. If you want to check all that out. And I have stuff on my YouTube channel, Contra Bassology, as far as my specific double bass content you know but there will be more to come in the future you know i've been just very busy with what i would definitely like you all to go check out which is bsooffstage.org bso sessions are premiering at 8 p.m every wednesday from here on out we have a lot of episodes coming up and uh really um interesting and fun content from the baltimore symphony orchestra that you may not have seen before so please go check it out
0: great And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press the subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The review and ratings help this podcast be more visible to others and it's a free way to support this podcast. Another free way though is to tell your friends and family about it and you can always become part of the Hide and Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash stand. Don't forget, there's also a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast. It's all great music and the link is always in the description of each episode follow us on social media facebook instagram and twitter all at heiden music stand for more content thanks chuck for being here
1: thank you very much patty this is so fun
0: yeah and thanks for listening sushi say bye